0: Baptist Church.
1: Good morning. Once I was timid and shy, and I felt very insignificant. I wasn't the smartest or the prettiest in my school. And in a world that values boys, I was born just a girl. I didn't feel I was good enough, and nothing I did met the standards set by myself, my family, or God. Then Jesus found me. And he told me that he knows everything about me and he still loves me and he can use someone like me. So today, because he lives and I believe, God's Holy Spirit is working in me, through me, around me, and for me to make me strong and courageous and to grow his kingdom. My name is Angela Lusigi and I'm new. Listen to this portion of God's story from the book of Nehemiah. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive trees and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, and in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first to the last, Ezra read from the Book of the Law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there
0: was an assembly. The word of the Lord. There was a, a young minister who was fresh out of seminary, and he got assigned to this congregation in um, kind of a stodgy little congregation in New England. And his first Sunday up to preach, he preached um, on, on John 13 that, that we need to love one another. And you know, we need to care for each other, and that's how people will know that we're disciples of Jesus. And, and he preached the sermon, and after, after the message, as is custom in some churches, we don't do it here, but he went to the back of the church, and as people were filing out, they were sincere, and they were saying, man, what a great sermon, Pastor, really good job. Well, the next Sunday, he gets up, and he preaches another sermon on loving one another. And how we need to care for each other. And, and by doing this, we're going to represent to the world that we are Christ. And after the service, he went to the back. and People filed by and said, another great sermon, Pastor. Really well done. Third Sunday, he gets up and preaches essentially the same sermon. We need to love each other. And, and, and so after the sermon, he goes to the back and people are filing out. And they're sincere, saying, good job. Well, after most of the people had left, this one of the elders of the church kind of came up to him and pulled him aside and said, look, first let me just say that these last three weeks the sermons have been top notch. They really have. I, I say that with all sincerity. They have been really, really good. But, but here's the thing. You've, you've really preached basically the same message three times and after three weeks I think it's time to move on. And the young minister said, well, With all due respect, sir, as soon as we start living this one, then I'll move on. That's kind of where I feel like I am today. Because last Sunday, James um, gave a wonderful message about community and about really belonging in the family of God and what that means and how Christ redeems us and, and what, what it means for us to, <coughs> to really live a part of the community. That it's not about saying a prayer. It's about, it's about living the life. And he talked about the fact that, that from Nehemiah chapter 7, that Nehemiah didn't go to Jerusalem in order to build a wall. I mean, that was the, thing, that was the rallying point. That was the project that got people involved. But the reason why Nehemiah went to Jerusalem was to build a people, was to, was to, to help create this community of people that would, that would relate to God and would relate to each other, and would relate to outsiders or other people in, in better and in, in different ways. See, Nehemiah didn't go to Jerusalem for a, a physical construction project. He went to Jerusalem for a spiritual construction project. To help grow these people to to really belong and be the people of God. And so that's what James, I think, wonderfully laid out last week. And so this morning, we kind of take the next step of that. What does that look like? Now, the wall was rebuilt in how many days? Okay, you guys did better in this service than the first service. They... they're like 51, uh, somewhere in the 50s, 52 days. That's a construction miracle. You can't remodel a bathroom in this city in 52 days, right? <laughs> Queeners know that. It's crazy. But they rebuild this whole wall in 52 days. So what does Nehemiah do next? He climbs up on the shoulders of some of the workers, and they prayed him around, and he says, "Yay, yeah, we did it! No, he doesn't do that. He goes to Sanballat and Tobiah and he wags his finger and he says, na-na-na-na-na, we built the wall. No, he doesn't do that. Does he gather the people and say, hey guys, well done on the wall. You got a really great wall. Now I'm back to Persia. No. What Nehemiah does, he knows he still has some people building to do. The wall's done. But the people aren't done. And so that's what we're going to see in these next three chapters of Nehemiah. And, yes, we're going to cover three chapters, so it's a good thing you have tomorrow off. Um, Nehemiah chapter 8. <coughs> Actually, this, it, this starts in the, the last verse of chapter 7. It says, when the seventh month came, and that's in the fall, And the Israelites had settled in their towns. See, Nehemiah, they'd built the wall and they'd gotten everything done. And and he'd said, okay, put the tools away, clean them up. And then I want you to settle down. I want you to settle into your house, settle into your stores. So once they'd all settled down, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. And this is not a hotel in Washington. You have to be old to get that. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, (coughs) Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively, attentively. That's a hard word for me to say. To the book of the law. You see what's going on? He gathers the people for a sunrise service. Now, I'm going to give you a little pastoral rebuke right here. You can't be on time to 1130 or 1115. 1115. Most of you dragon here, oh, you know. He calls them to a sunrise service. And then, what do they do? They read the scriptures for six hours. For six hours. Don't complain about the length of our services. And they didn't have a praise team. They didn't have a big screen with neat graphics. They didn't have... Uh, Somebody you know with a flip chart drawing these awe inspiring images. This was just six hours of sincere reading from the scriptures, where Ezra is recounting to them the faithfulness of God and the grace of God, and, and the fact that God has been faithful and patient with them even when they've been rebellious, even when they've turned their backs on him and and at times even worshipped other gods, they're saying, God has been faithful and we have not. And did you notice the word understand in verses 2 and 3? It said, and all who who were able to understand, others who could understand, (coughs) understand. Nehemiah wanted to make sure that everybody got it, that everybody understood. And so what he did is he got some Levites together, and he sent them through the crowd. Look down at verse 7. It says, the Levites, Yeshua, Bonnie, Sherebiah, Jamin, and and all their friends. um, You read those names instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, make, <coughs> making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. Do you see what's going on? Small groups. We, the Levites were the small group leaders. We got small groups during the week. They had small groups during the sermon. And maybe that would be helpful for some of you. What is he saying? What is he talking about? So the the Levites are going through the crowd, and they're making sure that everyone understands what the text means. Here's what it says, here's what it means, and here's what it means to us. This is what is right, and this is what is wrong, and so we shouldn't do what is wrong. We should do what is right. You see, they're helping them to understand and apply the scriptures to their their lives. Appropriate them. What was the immediate response? Verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the, the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why would they say that? Look at the next sentence. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. You see, what happened was when they, when the scripture was being read and they really got it, they understood how gracious God had been with them and how, how much they had rebelled against him. It brought conviction and it brought them to tears. And friends, that's what the word of God should do in our lives. When we read the scriptures we ought to we ought to recognize the the truth of God's grace and his mercy and his love toward us and the fact that we have so abused that so taken that for granted so rebelled against him that it should bring us to tears in repentance Notice verse 10 <coughs> Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some some to those who have nothing, nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Hebrew word translated as strength is the word uh, mazakem, and it can also be translated as stronghold or fortress. And so if... If you were one of these Jews and you were sitting in this assembly and, and you had just heard the truth about your sin and your weeping and conviction, you might respond to this by saying, well, how can I be joyful? How can I be joyful because of uh, I'm, just, I'm so sad about my sin? Well, you can't if you focus on your joy. But that's not what Nehemiah says. He says the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Lord's joy is your strength, your fortress, your stronghold. What is the Lord's joy? We talk about this frequently around here from Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Um, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the Joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. What was the joy before Jesus? We were. We were his joy. It was his joy to redeem us, it was his joy to forgive us, it was his joy to sacrifice himself so that we might be in right and eternal relationship with him. James talked about it last week that at the end of the day, we can't do anything to become a Christian except place our faith in what Jesus has done. It's all his work, not ours. But then there's something, once we become a follower, there's there's some obedience that comes. We'll get to that in a minute. So yes, let's weep over our sins. But then let's move on. Yes, be convicted. Yes, be sad. But then get get past it. Because Jesus has redeemed you. And his joy is redeeming you. And that then is your strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. His gracious hand extended to us in forgiveness. And that's what Nehemiah and the Levites are helping the, the people to understand. So verse 12, what's the end result? Then all the people went away to eat and drink to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Isn't that great? Oh, I'm so sad. I'm, so, I'm convicted. Oh, yeah, but God loves me. And God redeems me. So let's celebrate. And so they go and they celebrate. You see, with conviction comes repentance and with repentance comes forgiveness and with forgiveness comes strength and celebration. How many of you have experienced this? You've been in a season of your life where you're just kind of in the doldrums and you're just kind of, there's no joy in your life and you just can't seem to, to move forward. And then you hear a sermon, or you read a passage of scripture, or you go to a small group meeting, or or you have a friend who who just gives you a word and it hits you and you go, That's it. That's what's happening in me. And then you it convicts you and you repent and you say, Lord, change me. And then what happens? It's like this burden is just lifted. And all of a sudden, you've got new strength for life and new joy for life. See, that's, that's what's going on here. What happens, verse 13? And this is the portion that Angela read for us just a few moments ago. And this is what always happens when someone is truly repentant. When someone is truly repentant, this is what happens. Verse 13. <coughs> On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law, meaning the the heads of the families came together and and said, "Okay, what do we do now? What does obedience look like? We've repented we." We've been convicted, we've repented, and now we're full of joy. What's next? That's the way that you can tell if people have true contrition in their lives. Because once they've repented, they always want to know what the next step of obedience is. Because they don't want to go that direction anymore. In fact, that's what true repentance is. It's not just weeping over your sin and asking for forgiveness, but it's, it's recognizing that once you've forgiven, you need, you've been forgiven, you need to turn around and take action to go the other direction. And that's what these folks do. Verse 14. So they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. And there in verse 15, you see the proclamation uh, to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, I kind of skipped over it. In verse 13, it says the second day of the month. So th- this is the day after they have this you know, this six-hour scripture reading service. And they've had all this time, and then they go and celebrate. And they come back the next day, and they say, okay, now what do we do? And they look in the law, and the law says, well, you need to celebrate the Feast of Booths. What's the Feast of Booths? Well, the Jewish nation had three fall festivals. Didn't have. They have three fall festivals. Um, They have um, the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. The uh, the Day of Atonement Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Trumpets is, is about uh, is uh, is about declaring or confessing their sin. Um, it's about repentance. The Day of Atonement was about uh, redemption. Is about redemption, and then. And essentially, that's what we see in the first 12 verses. They, they were kind of behind, and so they crammed these two feasts into one day. But now they come to this, and, and they say, oh, it's the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Sukkot. We need to celebrate that. Now, in the Old T- Testament, a, a tabernacle was a temporary structure. It was... Um, it, you know, it was a booth. It was, it was a tent. You heard Angela talk about, you know, go and cut down olive branches and shade branches and come and, and create these booths. These were temporary structures. And what this festival, this feast was, was meant to, to help them remember is that for seven days, they would sleep on the ground in these temporary structures. <coughs> and that was to remind them of God's provision um, in the wilderness, you see, for all practical purposes, this nation should have ceased to exist. This nation should have died in the wilderness, except for the gracious hand of God, who would guide them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gave them water from a rock. He, he provided for their physical needs through more uh, manna and quail than they could possibly eat. And see, God was doing this as they were going through <coughs> this transition time until they could come into the promised land where they, would have, um, where they could build permanent houses. So this was a feast for them to remember and rejoice in God's provision. Verse 17. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this. And their joy was very great. I love how the the New American Standard Bible puts it. It says, um, and there was great rejoicing. It's kind of Monty Python, you know. (laughs) Yay! So they hadn't celebrated like this. They hadn't obeyed like this since the days of Joshua. You know how long that had been? Anybody? 800 years. It's been 800 years since this nation has gotten it right with regard to the Feast of Booths. And now they get it right and there's great rejoicing. They're saying, this is awesome. Why haven't we been doing this? Why haven't we been celebrating this? If you read on <coughs> through chapter 9, you'll see that these people are getting it. In verse 3, it says, they stood, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So they're reading the scriptures for hours. And they're being reminded. If you go on and read through chapter 9, you'll see what they're, what they're learning, what they're focusing on. They're, they're seeing again God's standards with regard to marriage and with regard to tithing and, and regarding uh, Sabbath and, and, and worship in the temple and a bunch of other stuff. And so they're, they're seeing this and they're going, wow, we haven't been doing that either. We haven't been doing that either. And so they're confessing and they're worshiping. And then Nehemiah does this amazing thing. He issues this killer challenge. At the end of chapter 9, he says in verse 38, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seal to it. And then, after, after he lists the first part of chapter 10, lists the people who, who signed this thing. And, and <coughs> in verse 29, chapter 10, it says, All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully. All the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. He says essentially, Will you or will you not obey all the commands of God? You've seen that joy comes from obedience. You've been been sleeping in tents on the ground for seven days and you're pumped. Because it's it's so good to be doing things the way God wants you to do it. So now what about the rest? Will you or will you not obey all that God commands? Why does Nehemiah go that far? Wouldn't it have been kinder and gentler if he had just giving him a little bit of a break and said, hey, I know we're just kind of getting the ball rolling on this. And so how about you commit to doing, I don't know, let's say 75%. You know, let's just, let's just get a start. You don't have to go all the way yet. Just, just commit to 75%. Why, why did he make such a huge ask? Because Nehemiah knew in the core of his being that the only way to live a fulfilling, satisfying, yes, even extraordinary life is to do it God's way. That when you are obedient and you do it God's way, it opens you up to the extraordinary. See, Nehemiah wasn't trying to put a religious straitjacket on them. He was trying to point them to the path, the only path that really leads to life. So he says, who's in? Who's going to go all in? Dallas Willard once wrote that the cost of non-discipleship is more than the cost of discipleship. The cost of non-discipleship is more than the cost of discipleship. In other words, it's going to cost you more in the long run not to obey God than to obey him. And friends, I know this to be true. I have never regretted being obedient to God. Never. There have been times, sure, when it's hard... I don't like it in the moment but it always moves me forward and I can always feel God's smile on me. It's like sleeping on the ground in a tent for seven days and you just go, this is right. doesn't feel good in the moment but this is right and I've never regretted being obedient but friends, I have enormous shame and pain From times when I've been disobedient. When I knowingly walked the other way. And my guess is you do too. And that's what Israel was coming to understand. As Ezra's reading the law. How gracious God has been. And look at what we did. And look at what happened to us. Why wouldn't we obey? Friends. If you want to step into that, that full and, and exciting and, and extraordinary life that God's created you for, you've got to have a hundred percent commitment hundred percent of the time. You will never regret obeying God. But I can tell you from experience that you will carry enormous amounts of shame and regret from the times that you disobey. And not only do you pay the price, but those around you pay the price as well. In 938, it says they put it in writing. It's like they have this obedience contract where Nehemiah asks everyone to step up and sign it. And do you know who signs it first? Anybody want to guess? Nehemiah, chapter ten, verse one. Those who sealed it were first on the list. Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and then other people start stepping up. Other people start saying, "I'm, I'm all into. I'm all in." Here's the question for us: What do you think would happen? if every one of us made the commitment to be obedient to 100% of God's commands 100% of the time. (laughs) How awesome would our marriages be? Right? How deep and meaningful would our relationships be? How huge of an impact we could make on, you know the culture around us we talked in chapter 3 about how much can, can happen when we all pull together and we all do our part what would happen if we all did our part being 100% obedient 100% of the time friends it would be awesome now I thought about um, actually in your bulletin there's an obedience contract that I'd like for you to sign. What if there was? Would you sign it? I decided not to do that. I decided instead that we would sing our declaration of obedience. So Dave, if you'll come. Come. There's a song that I sang growing up, growing up in church that maybe uh, some of you sang as well. It's a, it's a song that, that makes the declaration that um, no matter what, I'm going to follow Jesus. It says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. Friends, if you want to declare 100% commitment to God today, then I invite you to sing this song and to sing it with gusto. And just for those of you who are who are 75%ers, um those of you who have got that 25% that you're holding out that you haven't surrendered to God yet, that that you're saying, yeah, I can I can do better with this than God can. Let me just warn you In that area of your life, you will experience great pain and heartache. I can guarantee it. I've been there. The only way, the only way to step into the extraordinary life that God has for us is to say 100% commitment 100% of the time. So if you want to make that commitment, then I invite you to sing this This song says, Though none go with me, still I will follow. And there's going to be people in your life who are saying, Why, why did the hundred thing? Why not just the 75 thing? And it's not just people who aren't in the community of faith. That's it's people within the faith community will be telling you that. People in your family, uh, people in your small group. Hey, you can compromise in there. That's that's no big deal. At some point, you have to decide, no, I'm... Even if you don't come with me, I'm going to follow. I'm going to be all in all the time. And so if you want to make that declaration to God to say, I'm all in all the time, and even though people don't come with me, I'm still going to follow Jesus. If you want to do that, then I just encourage you to sing this next verse and stand as your declaration, I'm all in. So let's sing this. I have, to follow Jesus.
1: I have decided to
0: follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus, I have decided to follow
1: Jesus, no turn
0: Lord, I am so grateful that you were 100% in for me. For the joy set before you. You endured the cross. You didn't didn't go 75%. You went all the way. And so, Lord, as we come to the table and celebrate that, I pray that, that recognizing that you're all in commitment for us, will inspire us and motivate us to to be all in for you. Lord, we pray this for your name's sake. Amen.